Well, as has been mentioned already, and, and as Lauren mentioned uh, in, his, in his Elder of the Day uh, discussion, many people make resolutions at New Year's, and many people break those resolutions. It's, that's part of the tradition, it seems, to break the resolutions you so earnestly made just a couple days before. Um, and so you may wonder, what's the big deal? Well, people in all cultures value and they recognize the importance of time. And we mark spe- specific and, and, and very definite periods of time by how we engage in activities surrounding them. So, for example, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, there was a very clear weekly division of time where one day in seven was the Sabbath. But then on a yearly basis, every seven years was a Sabbath year where the land would get rest from being plowed. Then, of course, every 50 years you had the year of Jubilee, and you can read about that in the book of Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 25, I believe. You can read about the year of Jubilee, how how slaves would be freed, debts would be voided, uh, land would revert back to its original owner. So they're at each new year brought people with a sense of expectation of the coming jubilee. And every culture then makes a big deal out of the passing of time. And the beginning of a new year provides everyone an opportunity to to both reflect on what has transpired, to reflect back on, on what went right, or maybe what didn't go so well. What do we need to perhaps rework or rethink? moving forward? Or, or what do I need to reorient? So as we reflect, we need to consider all that has transpired and the lessons that we have learned. But then the new year provides an opportunity to look ahead, to see possibilities on the horizon, to anticipate perhaps as good as, as well as we can what God may be about to do in our midst and to position ourselves to grasp it. New Year's provide a convenient time. Now this holiday season, we've been looking uh, at tidings of comfort and joy. The first Sunday of Advent, we reflected on the fact that God, in the midst of human sin and human rebellion, that God didn't abandon us. Instead, God sought us out. God made a promise, and he provided a way to ensure that that promise would get realized. Then we had a snow week, and then we learned that God keeps his promises. And we looked at the book of Joshua, how specifically every word of the Lord that had been spoken was fulfilled. And ultimately, all the promises of God pointed to and found their yes and amen in the person of Jesus, who was born on Christmas Day. And so... Last week, being Christmas Eve, we looked at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, at Acts cha- or at Luke chapter 2, and we read about the incredible detail that Luke records to show us how God is sovereign behind all the circumstances. How the coming of Christ sets a pattern for us with his complete humility. And then how there was the hope that was presented even in the coming of Jesus, before he'd commenced his saving work of ministry. Now, if you've ever studied the Gospel of Luke, you know that Luke is a master literary 
literist, okay? He writes his book in such a way that he closes the loop. The book of Luke begins and ends at the same place. Where does the book of Luke begin? In Luke chapter 1. Well, you learn in verses 7, 8, and 9 that there's an old man named Zechariah. And it's been hundreds of years of silence. Hundreds, hundreds of years of silence. <laughs> and that, all of a sudden, just like that, God shows up. That was perfect timing, by the way. But an old man, at probably the final stages of his career, years of anticipating, it's, he's chosen by lot to go in and burn incense in the holy place. And what happens? An angel comes. Okay? So the book begins geographically in the temple. And where does the book end? Them praising God in the temple. Okay, remember that until Jesus comes and, 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 and shuts down the temple operations, the temple is the visible presence of God with the people. The book begins with hope and anticipation. And it begins, or it ends, with that hope having been realized, but that realization actually opening the window on an even bigger sense of expectation. This book, then, is all about Jesus. Anticipating him, explaining him, and then launching from him. This book, this chapter, this passage, wants us to look back at everything that has transpired in the previous 24 chapters. Namely, him teaching about who he is. Him revealing the way to God. And his disciples repeatedly, time after time, failing to get it. And in these final verses... They're offered a new beginning where the resurrected Christ appears to them and he brings everything full circle and he orients them the right way. And now they are locked and loaded and their job is to wait until the Spirit comes and then their ministry explodes into the world. And the world has never been the same since. A new year, a new beginning, a new opportunity. That's what awaits us. God has been so faithful to this church over 2017. He's been so, so merciful. And he's provided so abundantly in ex excess of all of our wildest expectations. We got to come into this building. He's sent a, a purchaser for our old facility. And they have paid off their facility. So God is doing a work in not only our church, but in our old facility with a new church. We've added to our number. I mean, this is amazing. And you guys are a part of it. And I've talked with each of you, or I should say most of you, and God has done an amazing thing in your life in 2017. Many of you started 27 at one place, but God has now moved you to another. So for some of you, it's geographically. For others of you, it's spiritually. 
For some, it's health. For some, it's financial. God has not been keeping you in a status quo since over 2017. It's been an amazing year. It's been a year of learning to trust in Jesus and follow him, waiting on his timing, even as he calls the disciples to do here. Now at the dawn of, or on the eve of 2018, new opportunities and new challenges certainly loom on the horizon for us. What will we do? Will we respond in faithfulness and faith? Or doubt and fear and disobedience? Will we panic and fret? Or will we boldly trust and march forward? That's my hope for you. But specifically, I want 2018 to be a year where you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So to that end, I want to challenge you. I sent out a link earlier this week with a a list of various Bible reading plans. I want to challenge you to read the Bible this year. Jesus in John 17, 17 makes an irrevocable connection between growing in sanctification, growing in godliness, and the Word of God. So make this a year where you read the Bible. But this passage here gives us three areas we can grow in. This passage here gives us the realization that we need to grow in our love of Jesus and his person. We need to grow in our awareness of Jesus and his word. And we need to grow in our level of participation with Jesus and his mission. Each of these three are something we need to grow in. This passage begins... uh, In verse 36, with the words, as they were talking about these things. Now, what are the these things that they're talking about? Well, if you look back to verse 13, this is resurrection day. Okay, this is is shortly after the resurrection. And what happens here is is lightning fast. Two, Two unnamed disciples of Jesus, but not the 12. So the two disciples here are not one of the apostles. They're some of Jesus' other followers. Okay? They're on the road to Emmaus, just a village. And Jesus shows up, but he does not reveal himself. And it's not until verse 30 when he accompanies them and he sits down to eat with them. And it says that he breaks bread, he blesses it, or he blesses it, he breaks bread, and he gives it to them. And it's as soon as he gives them the bread, their eyes are open, and they understand that it's him. But then just as soon as they understand that it's him, know what happens? He disappears. I mean, you would think it's a science fiction movie or something. I mean, he disappears, dematerializes, goes into a different dimension or something. We don't know. But he's suddenly gone. And they're like, whoa, that was Jesus. And it says they beat feet back to Jerusalem. They run immediately to Jerusalem and tell the eleven, we saw Jesus. And they're like, what? What's going on? And that's when verse 36 happens. Verse 36 happens. They're sitting there discussing what just transpired. Oh, that was Jesus? Really? Well, they're all just kind of bewildered. And Jesus is suddenly right there. He materializes in their midst. Boom. Peace be with you. And they're like freaking out. Whoa. And so Jesus asks two questions. 
why are you, why are you disturbed? Uh, <laughs> people normally don't just appear. <laughs> but then why do you doubt? He addresses their mood and he addresses their disposition. Jesus wants your whole person engaged in believing in him and resting in him. He doesn't just want your intellect. He wants your mood to be affected by the reality of his risen presence. And so Jesus proves that he's real. That he was an embodied being. Come, see my hands. Touch me. And now let me eat something. Now the cool thing about Jesus and his body here is that 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that this is a prototype, if you want to call it that, of what our body will be like when we're resurrected. Many of us don't spend a whole lot of time focusing on or asking questions about what the nature of our resurrected body will be like, but that is the hope we're looking for. Always remember that right now, uh, when, when we die and we go to be with the Lord in spirit, we're a disembodied being. But God did not create humans to be disembodied beings. We're not angels. God meant us to be an embodied being where our soul is wed to our flesh. So that's why the, new, the bulk of the New Testament focus is on the resurrection of the dead. Because our redemption is not complete until that day comes when our bodies come out of the ground and we're reconstituted and our souls are rejoined to our bodies and we will exist forever with bodies of flesh like this. But apparently, we get your body 2.0. Because as Jesus' body demonstrates, he apparently has the ability to teleport. That sounds crazy to us. I get that. But this is what happens. It's a real body. Now, he, he eats food. Does that mean he has to eat or he just can eat? I don't know. I sure love the idea that I'm able to eat because I love eating. So I really hope. And Jesus eats boiled fish, broiled fish. So, you know, I'm hoping that means that when I'm a resurrected person uh, that I can enjoy a steak. You know, but I, I don't know. I'm just saying, Jesus is a real person. Oftentimes we think in terms of Jesus as being this, this ethereal concept. We say he was a, but he was real. He had wounds. He could be touched. He could be smelled. He could be, he, he could be fed. He ate food. He's just as real as you and me. That's the Jesus we worship. And note that it says they worshiped him. Do you realize how scandalous this would have been? In a Jewish context, first century Jewish, they were really strict, rigid monotheists. You don't worship anything but God. They worshiped him. What does that tell you about what they thought or who they thought Jesus was? They believed he is God. We don't follow cleverly devised tales. So Jesus, the object of our worship, our Savior, our Redeemer, marvel at him, grow an appreciation of him, that he was fully man. And when he lived his life, don't discount him as a role model thinking, oh, he was God, of course he did. No, he did all that stuff in the power of his humanity. 
which is why he's a role model. He was obedient unto death. And Jesus raises his hands and he blesses them. And as he's blessing them, he's taken up. Okay, I want you to understand how significant that is. That Jesus, in his, as a priest for us, he's the one who mediates God's blessings to us. And so when Jesus is blessing you, he's pronouncing God's peace, God's power, and God's gifts to you. And that's what, significant why we as ministers, why you'll, it doesn't really matter what church tradition you go to, when, when, the, when the pastor or whoever the minister is pronounces the blessing, it's typically like this. Because that's what Jesus did. And when we do this, we are acting on, on his behalf. We're kind of his ambassadors. And we are invoking his name and his work to you to receive it by faith. Now Jesus He's, a, he's not me. I'm not him. And there's a huge difference in the power of, of his blessing and the power of mine. I, I'm, I'm pronouncing what Jesus has done, but when Jesus does it, it affects the thing that he's pronouncing. Because Jesus is God. But Jesus then ascends. And I want you to understand and rejoice in the beauty of his ascension. He didn't just disappear and materialize in heaven. He was taken up out of sight. And Luke chapter, or Acts chapter 1 stresses, it, it hones in a lot more closely on the conversation that was had as he was being taken up. Namely, that the way in which they saw him depart is the way in which he will return. Jesus is coming back, and his feet are going to touch terra firma once again. And think about this. Jesus, the Son of God, who existed eternally as the Son of God, has forever wed himself to human flesh. Have you ever wondered why in, in Hebrews 1, when it talks about Jesus is the creator of all things, and he's the upholder of all things, and then Ephesians 2 talks about Jesus having all things subjected to him, and Colossians 1 says that everything has been placed under his feet. And I'm like... I used to think, what's the big deal with that? Because if he's the son of God, if he's the second person of the Trinity, then everything has already been subjected to him. So what's the point? The point is that now he's the God-man. Now it's not just the son of God. It's Jesus personally. He is physically in heaven as the God-man forever. Humanity has been dignified in the throne place of heaven. The dust of earth has touched the throne of God. Think about that. There is dignity to your existence, dignity to your body. Jesus has placed it before God. That's incredible. So marvel at Jesus, okay? Grow in your appreciation and adoration of Jesus. Think bigger thoughts in 2018 of Jesus than you thought of him in 2017. Here in chapter 24, the disciples undergo a radical transformation of understanding about Jesus. And he becomes their object of worship, the one to whom they pray. Okay, so grow in your appreciation of his person. But also grow in appreciation or grow in greater knowledge of his word. It says that he teaches them, hey, everything 
This is what happened. This is what I said would happen in accordance to everything that's been written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, which is, according to verse 31, uh, the, the sum total of Scripture. And then it says, their eyes were opened to understand the Scriptures. Jesus didn't do something here like, like in The Matrix, Remember that movie, The Matrix, where, you know, oh, we're in a jam and I need to learn to fly a helicopter. So they, like, download, like, all the knowledge to, to fly a helicopter. And, I, I can fly a helicopter. And, or, and he says, well, I just learned Kung Fu. Okay? He opened their eyes to understand the Scripture. But it was the Scriptures that they had to study and come to apply. Knowledge of Jesus is tied to the scriptures. He didn't just spontaneously impart knowledge to them, abstracted from or separated from the word of God. There's a lot of people floating around who have a lot to pontificate about God, but it is utterly divorced from what God has revealed in scripture. Even the apostles had their knowledge base in the Word of God. Okay? Which harkens back to what Jesus says in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. So your sanctification is tied to the truth. Your Word is truth. Scripture is truth. So for the apostles to understand Jesus and everything he'd been teaching, they didn't need a special uh, source of data. All they needed was the illumination to understand what was written. But it's here. You want to grow an appreciation for Jesus? You want to grow an appreciation for how to live your life? You want to grow an appreciation of all the promises of God? Read the Bible. Study the Bible. Pentecost has happened. That's an irrepeatable event. So what does that mean? It means that we have been empowered so the illumination that we need has been given. If you believe in Christ, then your eyes have been opened to understand the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And I would dare say, the New Testament as well. God's word can be understood. Finally, grow in your appreciation of Jesus and his mission. Notice that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses to this. Okay, you are witnesses to this. He's not saying here that you, you are observers of, of all this. You know, we, we think in terms of being a witness, I've witnessed, I witnessed that, that car accident out there, or, or, or I witnessed uh, this, this football game, or I... No, when it says witness, it's martyrios. It's someone who's testifying in court. So when it says you are witnesses of this, it's, he's saying you are the ones who are going to tell people about the forgiveness of sins and the repentance from sins for their salvation in all the world. And that has been passed on to us. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, they're at the beginning of chapter 9, sorry. They're all having this holy huddle in Jerusalem. 
And it takes persecution to disperse the Christians. And it says, everyone who was dispersed as they went, they preached the gospel. Okay? Our job is to take the good news that there is repentance and forgiveness available in Jesus to all the world. Now for us, that may mean that some of us need to go to all the world. For some of us, that means we tell people in our sphere. And I would dare say that's the majority of us. Tell people in your sphere about what Jesus has done. But grow in participation. Christians were not called to be pew warmers. He's mobilizing an army. Not everyone in an army is a frontline trigger puller. But everyone in an army is working towards the, of the obtainment of the objective of winning the battle. So get involved. And this ministry of Jesus is all about bringing peace between God and man. Did you notice here that the first words Jesus said are, peace be with you? In fact, if you look at John chapter 20, every time Jesus shows up, it's peace be to you, peace to you, peace to you. And of course, that shouldn't be too big of a surprise because earlier Jesus has said that my peace I give to you. We learn in Luke chapter 1 when Zechariah gives his song of praise after his son John the Baptist is born. What does his song close with? Oh, you're, you're going to make a people ready for the Lord and he will guide their feet in the ways of peace. So that when the angel shows up announcing Jesus' birth, peace on earth with whom those God is well pleased. Back in Micah chapter 5, when we learn that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, what does that prophecy go on to say? That the one who is born in Bethlehem, he would be their peace. And so picking up on that in the New Testament, we learn that Jesus is our peace. Okay? And this is not just some passing comment. Every single New Testament epistle begins in its salutation or its greeting by invoking the peace that is ours in Christ. Every single one. The reason it's such a big deal is in that mindset. Peace has everything to do with the Old Testament concept of shalom. And peace in the Old Testament is not simply absence of warfare. That is such a, a, a puny, dissatisfactory idea of peace. That, that peace simply means that two warring party, parties stop shooting bullets at each other. No, peace means that two warring parties stop shooting and become friends. The idea of shalom has to do with blessedness and wholeness and completeness. So that, for example, if you do a word study on it, you can say that, that, a, that a fence is, is shalomed when it's, when it's completely put together, intact, with no defects. So Jesus comes to give us peace, restoring our relationship with God. 
and thereby recreating us. So that in Christ we can have wholeness and completeness, not only in our standing with God, but flowing from that within ourselves, within our relationships, within our world ultimately. That's why the scriptures teach that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will eventually cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. All because Jesus and the peace that he gives will be magnified throughout the earth. And that's what starts when people turn to Christ. So be all about adoring Jesus, his word, and his mission. 2018 is a great opportunity to turn and focus and reorient in that way. Will you join me? Let's pray.